0: I'm working on an erotica story right now that has some similarities to my first one, Blood Pact. Both involve trans lesbians, possessed books, monstrous femdoms, sapphic sexual anxiety, and otherworldly kinky experiences. But this one is a little different. Instead of tea for tea lesbian longing, it's about a cis dyke's desire for her trans girl best friend and how it manifests into a mixture of self-consciousness and timidness that eventually bursts out into an uncontrollable, unstoppable desire. Quite literally, for the record. The climax of the story, no pun intended, involves her turning into a gigantic snake girl who wants to be worshipped like a goddess. Most people tend to think lesbian erotica is filled with soft, flowery prose about holding hands, stealing shy glances, and wondering what it would be like to be kissed on the lips by your childhood bestie turned college roommate. This is a stereotype. Case in point, my smut tends to be a little, a lot more intense. It involves gaping holes, tentacles, bruised collars, queer women possessing other women, giantesses, vor, forced transformation, and sadomasochism. My girls live for getting hurt and hurting each other. Call it dark, call it violent, or say it's gothic car. But for me, my erotica is just a reflection of the complicated minefield that is sapphic sexuality. What happens when you're a dyke who spends all her life being told that your homoerotic desires are just predatory fantasies that have no place in society? You start fetishizing power in ways both good and bad. The bad side involves enabling oppressive power structures. The good side is the total opposite, queer sexual liberation. It turns out bondage is very hot when you're the one putting other girls into it, and she wants to be there too. I'm teaching a course this month for Pulp Mag's Pulp Public School called Right Like a Dyke, Crafting Queer Sex and Eroticism in Fiction. The class, which lasts for an hour and 30 minutes, is a crash course on everything writers should know before they step into writing queer sex scenes. It talks about things like eroticism versus sexuality, subversive queer sex as it's practiced then and now, think public sex, and how taboo parts of queer sexuality like leather are largely underrepresented in modern LGBT literature. It also explores how homoeroticism and queer sexual desire has appeared in literature unintentionally, looking at you, Shakespeare, good examples of how it's written intentionally today, and what writers should know about creating queer sex scenes before publishing them. My goal is to not just give queer and straight writers alike the tools they need to write some beautiful gay smut, but to also teach them about the complicated history they're walking into, the dangerous messages some assimilationist LGBT media sends about queerness and why they need to work with sensitivity readers if they're writing from outside of their lane. Write like a dyke is badly needed in today's day and age. Let's face it, there's a lot of squeamishness around queer sex because there's a lot of baggage around queer people being sexual people, doubly so if they are transgender. We live in an age where pride discourse is becoming a year-round occurrence as saps and this kink doesn't belong at pride. Saps, or sexual authoritarians and puritans, are antagonistic to queer sexual expression and obsessed with dictating how, when, and where queers can be sexual. More on them here in this NSFW manga edit that I did on my Twitter. Saps are primarily trans exempt LGBT people, and they lean toward being white and middle class. Many have a solid amount of financial stability or generational wealth. More often than not, they're driven by a need to maintain social acceptance, particularly from their families. But saps can come from any gender, sexuality, race, or class, because saps' driving motivation is shame. Shame for themselves, shame for how others feel about them, shame if their straight parents or siblings find out about their sexual fantasies and kinks. If a trans woman looks at another trans girl and says, she's so horny that she makes me ashamed of being trans, you found a sap in the wild. Saps aren't new, but they are scary because they fit very well with capitalist elite's fear of subversive queer sexuality, so they make for a great target demographic for defanged queer media. In the 2010s, we watched the emergence of a young LGBT audience so disconnected from its history that they concluded representation could only come from corporately sanctioned shows like Steven Universe, Adventure Time, or Shira. That's not to criticize the very real, very powerful queer representation happening on these shows, but they are just one kind of representation. Saps gravitate to these shows not just because they are safe, marketable, and family-friendly viewing, In their eyes, they are the most important kind of LGBT media. They're normal. This implies other forms of queer media are bad for being non-normative, which, taken to its logical conclusion, means any LGBT-adjacent media that isn't normative is bad. When the call comes from inside the house, it's horizontal violence, and my biggest fear is that those carrying it out are going to take over the home. Putting a name and label to sexual authoritarianism is a good way to resist it. When trans people started putting a name and face to turfdom, turfs lost a lot of their power in queer spaces. Connecting the lineage between turfs, SWERFs, and saps also helps. Sophie Lewis did this for the former two in her masterful piece Surf and Turf. She exposed the ahistorical fixation over bodies between Swerfs and turfs one that insists bodies must be pure of gender studies and sexual labor to reach an imagined, glorious past. Pro and anti-feminists of such analysis share a notion of the body as bearing an a priori, ahistorical, healthful legibility, Lewis writes. Whether they be avowedly feminist or anti-feminist, pro or anti-capitalist, the voices that reject transness and sex work are perpetuating a bourgeoisie myth about the relationship between capitalism and individual selves slash bodies. It's a myth that says that we can and must protect ourselves and bodies from commodification and technological contamination, the better to do healthful, productive work, whether as revolutionaries or as capitalist evangelicals. Lewis calls Swerf and Turf rhetoric essentially identitarian, and when you think about it carefully, well, of course it is. At its core, these movements want to dictate who can be a woman, how it's done, and looks to an imagined, traditionalist past decide how that looks. As Umberto Eco lays out in Eurofascism, the first feature of Eurofascism is the cult of tradition. According to it, there is a positive way of living womanness which patriarchy buried, tarred and cursed, but which the sisterhood can collectively recover. Lewis says, as Monique Wittig recognized when she provocatively suggested that lesbians aren't women, it is a beguiling identitarianism. But confusingly, it is as identitarians that today's pseudo-leftist Radfem's mock and lambast transfeminists nostalgia for an imagined lost past does not make a fascist in and of itself, but it's the obsession with that past traditions and its imagined purified bodies that make swerfs and turfs fash. There's an overlap between these two groups and saps, which is why you see so many saps engage in turf and swerf rhetoric or at least show their swerf and turf curious. This is because all three groups are obsessed with the a priori, ahistoric body, a body that can be freed from the degeneracy of the present and fulfill its intended past if only it breaks free from shameful corruption. And what causes this corruption? For all three groups, it's sex. Trans women are autogenophiles, obsessed with our gender identities to the point where we're sexual monstrosities. Allowing us to express our sexualities freely and openly runs the risk of destroying the fascist argument that sex is purely reproductive and desire is driven solely by an innate cissexist biological need for the cishuman reproductive system. Meanwhile, for sex workers, we facilitate sexual fantasies as labor, and for similar reasons our sexual labor has nothing to do with reproduction just intimacy, connection, and desire. When sexual intimacy is allowed to flourish freely and openly, fascism cannot contain others' sexual needs, which thwarts fascist attempts to control our lives through our sexualities. It's far harder to tell a person who to shoot if you can't even tell them who to fuck. This is where saps come in, and it's why they're not just puritans, but sexual authoritarians. Their goal is to dictate how and when sexual expression happens, because if sex can be contained and limited to a number of strict, always-changing rules, no age gaps over ten years, no age, age gaps over three, no age gaps, then other parts of our lives can be contained and managed, too. Sex workers, trans people, and leather folks are targets because we show there's another way to live life than this ahistorical bullshit, and it's why our sheer existence is treated as provocation to go to war with our bodies. This new culture had to be syncretistic. Syncretism is not only, as the dictionary says, the combination of different forms of belief or practice. Such a combination must tolerate contradictions. Each of the original messages contains a sliver of wisdom, and whenever they seem to say different or incompatible things, it is only because all are alluding allegorically to the same primeval truth," Echo writes. As a consequence, there can be no advancement of learning. Truth has been already spelled out once and for all, and we can only keep interpreting its obscure message. Feeling fascist yet? Naming this phenomenon is one important way to fight it. But another is to teach how to resist it. If we want to resist fascist creep into sexual expression, then we have to wake other queers up to our history in all its subversive, messy roots. Yes, we fuck in public, we have sadomasochistic fantasies, we hurt and tie each other up for fun, and we aren't simply three second kiss scenes on Cartoon Network. When we start to accept that this is who we are, that our existence can be fundamentally anti-fascist and thus threatening to fascists then we can start to create art for ourselves that celebrates this fact. This is exactly why I'm running right like a dyke and speaking to its values in and out of my work because they're urgent. We're past the early stages of fascism by now and looking at the final exit ramp to get off. If we want to survive, we have a lot of work to do.